we have a higher rate of everything in this country, incarceration, gun violence, alcoholism, drug abuse, and it is because there is profit in keeping these systems going. This is big business, keeping people in prison, keeping people addicted, keeping people poor. Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. So the first time like I heard about Simone Missick, I was talking to my buddy who's uh, this old friend of mine from Hell's Kitchen. He's a teamster out in L.A. now. He got sober, he got his life together. When I went away from murder like 18 years ago, he, he was caught up in the life and he moved out there. And he kind of got a, a gig as a teamster. And what they do is they pick up stars and they move props around. So I called him one day and he was like, he's like, yeah, I'm about to go pick up Simone Missick. She's like the star of that show All Rise. I was like, oh, I watched that show. And she's like an activist judge and I had watched it a couple of times. So I was like, yo, tell her if she wants to talk to your boy who's a journalist in the joint, you know, like to see what's up. Judge Lola talking to somebody that's really on the inside. And uh, she was interested. She was like, I'll talk to him. That's, that sounds cool. So the following is my interview with Simone Missick. Check it out. Thank you so much, John. I'm happy to be here. I was recently watching the NAACP Image Awards on myself TV and saw you in the audience your husband, Dorian, a big shout out to Dorian Missick, by the way. I see him on for life. And you were nominated for the Judge Lola role in All Rise. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, that was a first, a huge first for me as an actor. Um, very proud moment. I was able to have my parents there with me, which was great as well. Yeah. So let's jump into All Rise. When I watch you on All Rise, I feel like there is like so much of Simone's character I think that Lola is definitely the kind of judge, the kind of lawyer Simone would want to be. I think she has a lot of interesting conflicts and dichotomies that exist within who she is that I don't know if I would have been as smart to look at the system in that way. When I grew up and when I was thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, of course, lawyer pops in there because I think it does for every kid that watched the Cosby show and saw Felicia Rashad playing Claire Huxtable, or at least every little black girl. And there was always this motivation in my family for social justice. I come from a very active family politically, especially when it surrounds union organizing. I come from a union family and my brother works for the head of the nurses union now, but for years he worked for SEIU and I interned with SEIU and it was always this idea in our household about looking out for the little person and being aware of people 
who are being trampled by a system and not just within the justice system, but within housing discrimination and improper federally funded schools and health disparities. And, you know, so there are things that Lola seeks to fix in her courtroom as a judge. I think I would have been on the other side of that fight as a public defender, thinking that would be the best way to help people. But what I think is so interesting about her character, which I never knew until watching this show, was this idea. And I'm not sure how many people this is actually true for, but the idea that as a deputy district attorney, she is more empowered to help those being misused by the system. Because as the writers of this show have decided, this is a woman who knew that she had the power to determine who got charged and with what, which is something that a public defender doesn't have that same empowerment. That concept alone, I wonder how much of Simone would have been able to see that if that were my chosen profession. But she's definitely a woman that reminds me of the better parts of myself. You know, she comes from a strong family, a very active mother and father. You know, mother was a community activist. Her dad was a paralegal. My parents, my mom was a social worker. My dad was an adult educator in Detroit for decades. And just this idea of being of the people and working for the people is something that's always been a part of my upbringing. So I definitely look at the better parts of Lola and see myself. It's a very well-written show where it informs the audience about some of the very important issues. Like, there's a lot happening when you tell the court officer who wants to be a lawyer, he's in law school, he has like a relationship with the other public defender. You tell him to become a prosecutor because the DA sets the terms, and I quote, like Lola, the DA sets the terms of who gets charged. There's authority there. I mean, there's a message here for the viewer. Can you unpack this a bit? Yeah, I think so often we as an audience and we as people who might or might not be directly affected by or have a loved one who is in prison or has been through the justice system, been on trial or been accused of a crime, we so often look at the police and we look at prison. We ignore sometimes what happens in the middle what happens in a courtroom. And there is this idea and this concept that I think has definitely become more widely discussed about criminal justice reform as it relates to sentencing reform. The three strikes law is something that we recognize just completely destroyed whole communities, overcharging people for minor drug offenses or improper sentencing for poor people and people of color versus their white, wealthy counterparts. We look at that and don't recognize that that directive comes from somewhere. There are individuals, there are district attorney's offices that can determine these things. You know, we just had an election in California where we are voting for judges and voting on measures that affect prison reform and criminal justice reform, Measure R. But we don't talk about the fact that these district attorneys are people who determine, as Lola says, the rules of the fight. They determine who gets charged and with what. It is her hope that being gone from that office, if she can bring in another person of color like Luke, 
who comes from the other side of the legal system. He's a bailiff, which means he's an officer of, of the law. And he has seen a tremendous amount of something from that perspective. If she can put another Black person into that office to have that same sense of thoughtfulness and care and understanding about what can sometimes lead people to do the things that they do and not just rubber stamp people's lives with sentences, with harsh sentences, then a difference can be made. Lola often will, if this is a first offense or a low-level offense, try to plead people down to a misdemeanor, try to give people community service or house arrest or treatment, drug treatment or mental health treatment, as opposed to just saying, well, this is a person who did a crime. We have an episode coming up that deals with ex-Marine with PTSD, who is on his first strike. It's his first felony charge. And it's obvious that this man is in pain and that he's hurting. And his public defender fights to have him examined in mental health court, which is already taxed and has a three-month waiting period, which is common. Our system, unfortunately, is overwrought with people who need people to take a further step in order to help, and yet it doesn't necessarily happen. And so to have that portrayed on television, I think, shows the audience that there are other ways to attack this problem that we have. And treating poor people, people with mental health issues, people with drug dependencies as criminals is not the way to do it. What's up with L.A. and over there in real life, not in the show? You said they recently had an election with the judges. How does the community feel about the current district attorney in Los Angeles? Why do you feel? You know, what's interesting, I can't say necessarily or distinguish how L.A. feels as much as the people that come up to me definitely feel as though it is an important show. It's one that they enjoy. I get feedback not only from people that I meet, but people who reach out to me who say that they do feel like it's important work. It is something that crosses generations. You know, I get a lot of people who say, my mom and I watch this show together, or I call my aunt every week after the show and we recap it, or, you know, my granddad loves this. What is interesting is, It's multi-generational, I think, because it's on CBS, but then also having a young, multi-racial cast really resonates with younger people as well. I have had the chance to talk to some Black female lawyers in L.A. and judges. You know, the last thing that a lawyer wants to do is watch a legal show, (laughs) which is something I don't I don't think I ever thought about, but it's the same with doctors. You know, they don't want to watch Grey's Anatomy because it pisses them off. Mm-hmm. They think this is just Hollywood, not knowing how to say what accurately goes on. But these women said, you know, I told you I wasn't going to watch the show. I did watch the show. And I think that you are doing an excellent job. And I enjoy the way that you all are handling this material because it's important. Nothing on television, I think, has the benefit of being unimportant when you are talking about marginalized people. People who deal and who enter into the halls of a courtroom are oftentimes marginalized or disenfranchised. Our writers definitely 
find the balance and they strike the fine line of talking about really large issues, immigration, police brutality, the way that we treat our veterans, drug abuse, all of these things. They take these really large issues and they're able to thread it line in a way that doesn't feel didactic. It doesn't feel preachy. It doesn't feel like it's one-sided. It definitely opens up the conversation for everyone to feel as though their perspective is at least shared. And I think that that's important in seeing change happen when it comes to the voting polls and elections and the things that people get behind politically. But judges use discretion, too. I remember one episode that stands out to Judge Lola's opinion on this guy, and it kind of blows up in her face. I'm talking about the episode where she discounts the sentence of the guy Chip. The guy's a mess, but she kind of gives him a break, like, kind of get your act together. And then he goes out and does something horrible, and Judge Lola, she had this moral grappling. I remember she reflects on her decision, and she says, maybe he believed he said what he said when he said it, or I heard what I wanted to hear. I mean, can you bring us to that episode? Because I can personally, like, identify with this, and I'll give you my uh, little vignette, but just for the listener, like, perhaps contextualize this episode, if you will. Yeah, so um, there was a descendant young man, Travis Bolson, and he was accused of stealing a car. And the mother of his girlfriend, you know, was adamant, you need to lock this young man up. He's stolen from me. He's going to steal again. Lola's looking at this person. This is his first offense. And she's like, I'm going to give him a misdemeanor charge. I'm not going to charge him with the full weight of what could possibly happen. This idea of giving someone a second chance. Sadly, like you said, what happens is he goes out and not more than two days later, steals a car, goes on a high-speed chase, gets into an accident, and dies. And this man's girlfriend is left without a partner. His daughter is left without a father. And all eyes are on Lola and her idea of creative justice and reform in that way. I think that what is a beautiful thing that gets handled a little bit later, because Lola ends up being brought up on charges of whether or not she's fit to be a judge, and this is one of the cases that they use to argue against her, um, there's this really lovely scene between myself and Paul McCrane, who's a phenomenal actor. He's also a director on the show. He plays a very conservative judge on the show as well. And he says, we never know. And it is not your job to know. And all you can do is what you can do. And for Lola, that can't change. She can't look at every defendant and say, well, are you going to disappoint me like that other person disappointed me? Or is this going to blow up in my face? And the idea of allowing for human beings to choose. I remember listening to a podcast where they went in the courts in Cleveland and they stayed in this courthouse and there was a judge who very much felt like he was God. He was the understanding father that all of these defendants had. And there was this one woman who had struggled with drug abuse and addiction. And all she wanted was to have her case diverted to 
a different courtroom that dealt with defendants where she would get treatment instead of getting prison time. She was a mother and she had been in and out of jail. And this judge just refused as if her illness was not real, as if he knew what was best for her. And it was infuriating because I think that we all recognize the people who suffer through drug addiction. That's an illness. It's like a mental health illness. It's like it's alcoholism is it's an illness. I've had alcoholics in my family. I've had people who suffered through mental health illness. It's all the same. And yet this judge could not see that. He said, I know what this woman needs. I know that all she really needs is more jail time. I think that that is what everyone grapples with who are judges. What is the right decision for this person? And depending on what, what your background is and how long you've been doing this, you might be jaded to think that, you know, a person in front of you can change and then you have to deal with those consequences. I had a judge roll, but then it's 
but you did. I, I, I was honest with her. I did have a judge vote, and she gave me a shot, and I blew it. I just wanted to share that with you. No, I think it is complicated. You know, I said that my mom worked in the foster care system. She saw a lot of children who were in and out of juvenile correctional facilities. And I remember vividly the first child that was sentenced as an adult in Michigan. I think he was 13 years old. And I remember my mother just feeling like the world was falling down. The idea that a child whose brain has not yet developed was going to be in prison with hardened criminals and adults. And, you know, there is an idea about how much juvenile courts actually help and rehabilitate. So it's interesting that you say, you know, you spent, I think you said 18 months in juvie when you were younger. I question, and obviously we don't have a crystal ball and all of this can be looked at as fantasy because all we have in front of us is, you know, what we had in front of us. But I question what might have happened if your first experience within the court system was not to send you to a facility and what that would have been like and what, how many kids' lives are changed and irreparably damaged by being put in essentially jail under the age of 18. And you hear people all the time talk about how juvenile facilities are way worse than adult facilities when it comes to helping them to reform, helping them to figure out the tools that they need to not come back. And so, no, I think that all of that deserves to be discussed and examined by us as a society and question how much of it is choice and how much of the way that we handle human beings puts them on a path to end up continuing to offend and to reoffend and to reoffend. And it's not a one-pronged idea. I think it's a multi-pronged set of questions that we have to ask. And unfortunately, we live in a country that values profit over anything. And so this is big business, keeping people in prison, keeping people addicted and keeping people poor. Yeah. I mean, I always thought it was too bad that judges couldn't, like, take a second look at, you know, like a prisoner's progress, a judge of all character. She sees people at their worst, and all judges in real life, and Judge Lola's to all rise world, she sees people at their worst. That's one thing I will say. You, you never see people at their best, and you, you don't know. And I think we all want hope for each other just as human beings. I talked to a lot of people on this show. I recently spoke to Mark Maurer. He's like the head of the sentencing project in Washington, D.C. And he's proposing like a 20-year cap in America. He doesn't think really much goes on in prison after 20 years, for the most part. And then he suggests like a 15-year sentence. Book. Like basically, okay, you know, this guy got the message. What's he done with his life? I will say, I don't think the judge that sentenced me to 28 years to life did not think that I'd be sitting here talking to you today or writing for Esquire or doing the things that I'm doing. But I didn't think that. And that's the point, right? Mm -hmm. The judges are some of the smartest people in the legal and the criminal justice system still. I mean, even some of them are judges. But you're right. Let me just say this. Just some of your, I mean, you talk to writers. Do they think about fictionalizing this, like, newly implemented, 
what it looked like. I mean, I would love to see an episode like that. A Judge Lola would sit on the panel, for example, a second look panel, looking at guys we sent away for murder. What are they doing at 18, 19, 20 years later? And it costs you know, $70,000 mm-hmm. a year to keep guys like me in prison. What are they doing? This is not an advocacy for me. There's plenty. I'm in sync thing. We have master's mm-hmm. degrees, guys walking around me with master's degrees. These guys are heavy hitters in there. They came in. They're much different men than the broken young men and oftentimes teenagers uh, when they came to prison. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'd love to see, like, like an episode of that. I mean, you could do that with scripted shows. I mean, it's I would love to see in my uh, Judge Lola sort of, like, at the panel looking at guys, perhaps even gals that would come before this panel. I think it would be an interesting show. What do you think? I would love to see that too. And what you said about how much it costs to keep a person in prison a year. (laughs) Our system is just so broken because I've seen these figures and I wish that I could quote them, but the amount of money that it costs to keep a person in prison versus the amount of money that we spend per child in school a year is so drastically different. We do not give people in this country that are not wealthy the best opportunity to succeed. I mean, I came from a two-parent household. My dad and mom both have master's degrees. And my brother still got in trouble, still was in and out of situations that, by the grace of God, he is where he is now today, but there are people around him. He talks about this all the time who are no longer with us. Guys who got shot, died. You know, you're growing up in Detroit in the late 80s, early 90s. You have the crack epidemic. You have an industry that completely evaporated in the auto industry. You have schools where they do not have books or toilet paper. I remember this being something going on when I was a student that my father spoke out about and fought against and eventually was targeted and fired for speaking out against it. But these are so many things that set people off on a path. And we look at the individual and go, well, you could have chosen different. The fact is, you can. Every human being has a choice to make. But sometimes it's a lot harder to make those choices if you don't have anything around you that looks like hope, that looks like opportunity, that is that one person, that Judge Lola or that teacher who sees you and sees your potential and says, you know, you have a gift inside of you. And I don't know what that gift is. And you might not know what that gift is, but it's not doing this. And it's not going down that path. And we have a higher rate of everything in this country. In one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we have a higher rate of incarceration, gun violence, alcoholism, drug abuse. We have such high rates of these things. And it is because there is profit in keeping these systems going. I question what would happen if we did examine an episode or episodes or the conversation around re-examining people's offenses. And yet then you can also look to the other side of it. You know, you can look in the newspaper, watch the news and find out about people who spent a term in prison, got out, 
and reoffended. And the question is, is it because they were evil and they were always going to reoffend? Or is it because they had no opportunity once they were released to do anything better with their lives? My husband is also an actor, Dorian Mystic, and he's on a show for life right now on ABC, which tells the Isaac Wright story, Isaac Wright Jr. But he also did a movie called The Brian Banks Story about a young football player who was falsely accused of rape, served six years in prison, I believe, and got out and could not get the job, could not go back to football, couldn't get beyond, you know, this station of menial work because of his record. And this man fought to have his case reopened in a very supernatural way, was able to get a confession from the person who falsely accused him and was able to retroactively exonerate himself. And the Innocence Project helped him, but his uphill battle was, you already served your term. The Innocence Project fights to help people who are incarcerated. But you've already, you're already out, man. What can we do for you? And, you know, these stories make movies and they make books because they are mind-blowing that these things happen. But, you know, this is a person who was innocent and got out and still couldn't get his life on track. And, you know, he went on to play in the NFL and now he's an author and a father and a producer on his own life story and doing great things and helping youth. But, We basically say, if you've gone to prison, you're useless in this country. And so the fact that you've been able to find your gift to the world and expose what life is like in prison and and be that lifeline for us outside who forget that each and every day people's lives are being affected by this is important. And, you know, I thank you for finding that journey along the way. Oh, well, thank you, Shalom. I mean, by the way, big shout, I watch him on For Life, too, uh, your husband, Dorian Mystic. I, I see him in the show, and it is, and it was actually filmed in Sing Sang at the bottom of the hill. I mean, something. Yeah, no, he, that's what he said. He was like, we're there all the time. Yeah, so just to lighten it up a bit, I was like, when I'm watching you on the show, what's up with D.A. Moore? I know some of the fans are thinking, like, is this more than a friendship? Or, like, what's the deal with that relationship? What are we we doing? (laughs) What do we have in store? Uh, Much of the same of people wondering, will they? And Mark and Lola being very clear on the fact that this is a platonic friendship. I think that that's a beautiful thing. But I think that people will always read into it what they want to. And it's the nature of network television that you want to see some drama. You want to see something sexy and illicit. But I value the fact that we are showing a man and a woman who are best friends. She's black. He's white. And you watch them be able to go through their their work lives and challenge each other on their own personal issues. At one point, Lola in one of the episodes says to Mark, are you mansplaining my trial to me? You know, that's only something that best friends could do to one another and it be handled in a very quick and and funny way. And then Mark has a trial later where he's arguing for a doctor to be charged with murder and not malpractice. And we highlight Black maternal death rates in this country, which are extremely high. I wonder if he would have fought for that kind of case if he did not have 
a best friend who was a black woman that he's known for over 15 years. And so what I love about the two of them is that they challenge each other in a way that other people don't and that you watch that play out in the cases that they try and the things that they do. And it doesn't have the messiness of, and now they're, you know, hooking up. But who knows what will happen if the show is on the the air for another seven seasons. Personally, I don't think Mark can handle Lola, but, you know, that's another story. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to agree. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he could either, but that's just me. I also loved how Judge Lola put that dirty chick top in her place. Too. Like she, I think people in law enforcement, not all, but some believe in this like Machiavellian and justify the means like kind of way of thinking. I saw that a lot when I was in Attica. It was very mm-hmm. ugly. It was an all white security staff, pretty much an all black prison population. And since the 1971 riots, it was like, you know, we got to keep on foot on their necks. And it was just, it was just so intense there. I mean, I wrote about it, but it, it, it was ugly and I just, you know, you just, you love it when, uh, when the character, Judge Lola, sort of checks the female police officer that she's dirty. Yeah, and, you know, I agree, not all police officers are, are corrupt and at the end of the day, human beings are human beings um, and we all make mistakes, but I think, you know, when you get a collection of people who believe that all of these people are evil or wrong or less than human you watch that kind of corruption just multiply. And I can only imagine what an all-white law enforcement system looks like in a prison with mainly Black people, Black and brown people. The same way that I look at it with how that is affected by communities that are mostly Black and brown and the police are mostly white. I have a really good friend who's a sheriff in Carson, And Carson is one of those cities that is rare in that it's about equally Black, Latino, white, and Asian. The the numbers are roughly 25% of each group represented. And as a female sheriff and a Black woman, she definitely goes into these communities and has a different perspective. You know, she's told me countless times about having encounters with people who are black and brown and to her coworker, the person standing next to her, they might be quick to draw their weapon or to escalate a situation that she being within that community is able to de-escalate it and to see that person in front of her. And she's a person that I've used a lot in the work that I do when I was playing Misty Knight and now as Judge Lola, much in the same, she's an inspiration in that way because she's a part of the system, but she's not a part of the problem. And I think that if we have more people like that that work within law enforcement that come from these communities that know this person could be my brother or my cousin or my mother, we will have a lot less of the interactions that we have. And that goes for inside the prisons as well. I do agree. Uh, one of my friends I grew up with, I grew up before Manhattan, I grew up in Brooklyn, and a friend of mine, he was like my best friend. He was black, I'm white, and I, you know, we grew up. I went one way, he went the other. And today, like, I'm in prison, you know, doing 28 to life, and he's the inspector of the NYPD. Yeah. And you know what? I'm glad he's in that position because he's a shot caller. Like, and I know he's seen, <laughs> I know everything he's seen because I knew him before he was a cop. <laughs> 
you know, I'm, I'm glad he's in that position. And I'm proud of him today. And I know he looks at me in here and he's proud of me. And we can't be, he can't, you know, sort of come see me on visits, you know, because of, so he's just so high in the level of the NYPD. But, you know, if he's listening to this, you know, I'm a Mobius. I made something like a movie that's talking to the Simone Mystic, and I know he's doing great work too. But uh, I really want to uh, thank you for, you know, just coming on the show and just having a really enlightening conversation, pulling back, you know, the curtain on who's behind Judge Lola. I just, I hope, you know, the listeners got as uh, much out of it as I did. Really, I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really, I'm glad we were finally able to do this. Thank you for pressuring our mutual friend to uh, get us on the phone together because this has been a lot to me. This is probably one of the better interviews I've had in a really long time. So thank you. Oh, I mean so much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. This is another episode of This is a Collect Call from Sing Sing. And I'd love to hear you guys' feedback. Tweet me at John J. Lennon 1. Please tell me, uh, tell me your feelings. Tell me where I can improve. All that. Thanks. Oh, that's it. That's my call. I gotta run. The caller has hung up.